When the day is done and you have some time off, how do you spend it when you're living in a medieval city? That's what we're talking about today on Footnoting History. Hey everyone, this is Christine. I thought today I'd shake things up a little bit and stray away from my usual chatting about things exclusive to the kings and queens of medieval Europe and their nobility and talk about something that encompasses everyone. The need to be entertained. Yes, the higher up you were in the hierarchy of medieval life, the more time you had to amuse yourself. But everyone had to have something to keep them going, and I thought we should look at what they enjoyed the most. For our purposes, I'm going to split this into two main areas. First, sports and games, and then theater. I do, however, need to make a distinction. I'm limiting this to entertainments you would find in the cities and towns of medieval Europe, simply for the sake of my brain and your time. Honestly, I'm sure that a lot of what was going on in the countryside overlapped with the entertainments in the towns. So, if you hear me discuss something where you're thinking, I bet so-and-so in Yorkshire or southern France would have done this too, the odds are you're probably very right. With that said, off we go into sports and games. The sport most commonly associated with the aristocracy in the Middle Ages is hunting. The upper classes of towns loved to hunt and were often able to do so with a jaunt directly outside of the town walls. The middle and lower classes also liked to hunt directly outside the town. Oh, and as an aside, I know it can be somewhat controversial to use the term middle class when discussing the Middle Ages, because there has long been a scholarly debate as to when exactly the middle class came into existence. I'm only saying this because you can obviously tell where I fall on the debate by my use of the term. But, while their richer counterparts got to ride on horses and use packs of dogs to sniff out their quarry, the lower classes were usually stuck walking on foot and using spring traps or spears to find what they wanted. Sometimes you'd even see the aristocrats hiring someone from the lower classes to help them out and act as guides. In terms of wondering what they hunted, well, that could be anything. While the aristocracy were exclusively the ones who hunted boar and deer, pretty much anything else, like rabbits, say, were fair game to anybody. In Spanish cities, hunting was so prevalent that individual towns had strict rights and regulations pertaining to their surroundings, which dictated who could do what and where exactly they could do it. Hunting aside, though, the most frequently played games were ball games. You can trace ball games back to the Romans and the Muslims. Both cultures favored this kind of entertainment and left an imprint of it on the places they had at some point inhabited. As much as you hear about English people now being obsessed with football, or what Americans would call soccer, you might be interested to know that the first spectator sport there is widely believed to have been a medieval form of field hockey. There was also a game called stool ball, which developed later on into what we today know as cricket. It was a favorite of the lower classes and began with one person sitting on a milking stool while another person threw a ball at the stool. The person who was sitting on the stool had to prevent the thrower from hitting the stool by using either their hands or a small paddle. During the later Middle Ages, especially in England, towns tried to accommodate their people by creating public recreational facilities. 
Did you ever think people in London in the 1450s would be spending their afternoons playing tennis and bowling? Well, that's what they did. That's not to say you were limited to physical activity. If you're anything like me, you're far more comfortable when something does not require a talent for sports. So, I think if I was around in the Middle Ages, I would be the sort of person who played chess or learned some of the games that use those newfangled things called playing cards. As a side note, if you're a New Yorker, the Cloisters has a display of playing cards, so you should go and take a look at that. Playing cards were actually popular first with the French and the Germans, but the English began to import them in the 15th century. The cost of importing playing cards was high at the beginning, meaning you had to have some money to get them to England, but, just as in other areas of Europe, they eventually made their way to being popular among all of the classes. And of course, what became the most popular place to play cards? Taverns, just like the one Samantha mentioned in her Drinking in Medieval England podcast. Taverns were a mainstay in medieval towns, and definitely a center of entertainment for the townspeople. Where else could you relax with an ale while playing a game of backgammon, or my personal favorite medieval game, Hazard? Some of my fellow podcasters and I once decided to have a day of playing medieval dice games, and let me tell you, they're more complicated than you'd think, but also a heck of a lot of fun, especially when you don't know what you're doing. All you need for it is a few people, two dice, and a good memory to pick up all the rules and remember what numbers mean when you win or you lose. A fun fact, the modern game of craps comes from taking the rules for hazard and watering them down. But you could be a medieval townsman who has lost a bit too much playing hazard after a few too many drinks, then your wife might have had something to say about it, and you'd find yourself at our second topic, the theater. Plays were put on throughout Europe, usually either by traveling theater troops or local actors. Either way, this form of entertainment required significant funding, which usually came as the result of patronage from one of several areas. Ecclesiastical lords, the aristocracy, royalty, or guild sponsorship. I kind of love this because it shows that there was some sort of care shown for the people in the towns by those who ruled over them in the providing of entertainment for them. Still, the donated money from the lords or the guilds was supplemented by charging admission into the performances. That's right, even in the Middle Ages you had to pay a lot. In order to draw an audience, it was common for posters to be placed around the town as well as having either trumpets or a person with a very loud voice hawking the performance as the times drew nearer. If anyone's ever been to New York's Times Square and been accosted by someone trying to get them to go to a comedy show, or been handed a flyer for some new Broadway musical, I imagine it's pretty much the same experience only using trumpets. If anyone wants to question the popularity of attending theater performances, you can just look to France, where in several towns, including Paris, there were times where church services were rescheduled so that the congregation and the clerics could attend these performances. The majority of plays were done in an open-air theater built for the temporary run of the play. Often, these would be located in or near the marketplace, though it was also possible that they could be placed in any large, unused area. There were three levels of seating, and in something that would be considered the reverse of today, the closer your proximity to the stage, the cheaper your seat was. Not to mention, the cheapest so-called seats were actually standing positions directly against the stage. Behind that was a second section of seating, which came in the form of a raked platform with benches on it. 
The third form is the box seats, the most expensive of which contain their own privy chambers, so you could use the bathroom anytime you wanted, and were almost exclusively for the use of the aristocracy or visiting nobility. You could attend one play and be within spitting distance of all levels of society, and I actually always wonder if the actors thought about that when they were standing on stage. Plays were not standardized, and they were generally only done once. This could partially be because of the expense of mounting a show, and because of how long each show was. One play could last up to six or seven days to be performed in its entirety, being broken down into two sessions, which took up half a day each, and then performed on continuous days until the play finished. A lot of times, the town would provide meals during the dinner break to try and prevent the audiences from leaving. I don't know what that says about the type of plays that were going on, but I'm sure some were great and others, well, they made you look forward to what was being served for dinner. Most of the plays had biblical themes, drawing from a New Testament story such as the Passion of Christ. Or maybe it was one of the parables, like the prodigal son, where the family rejoices over the return of a child that they once thought was lost to the bad side of life. Also popular were miracle plays, and plays which showed the lives of saints. That is not to say that all of the plays were serious. Medieval people loved their comedies as much as they loved their religious stories. Farces were characterized by quick dialogue and usually the theme of a trickster who ultimately ends up being the tricked. They were particularly popular in England and France. In fact, France had their own brand of a farce called the Sati, which was comedy done by fools dressed in brightly colored outfits with hats that had donkey's ears on them and sticks with bells. This was considered the most slapstick version of comedy. On the other hand, the Italians took their theater in a different way. They stayed away from comedy and filled most of their time with spectacle. There was no Italy as we think of it now. Instead, it was a group of city-states, but throughout them, one theme was consistent. They held their religious-themed dramas dear and put all of their effort into the use of elaborate costumes and colorful set designs. Audiences were generally very enthusiastic, and the towns often feared they would become out of control. So, along with a pre-show announcement to keep people quiet, towns often had to utilize an increase in policing in case that fight should break out. And yes, fights did break out, and sometimes those fights escalated into riots. How? Well, there was one time when a French heckler made the mistake of heckling someone while unknowingly being seated next to the man's wife. Like any lovely woman would do in defense of her husband, she slapped the offending man and soon a riot broke out. The people may have enjoyed the play, but I'm guessing the riot is what got talked about in the taverns the next day or at the dinner table. Maybe you could consider witnessing a brawl to be the entertainment all on its own. In Italy and France, the Middle Ages also saw the rise of dinner music, where musicians were hired to play throughout a meal for the entertainment of guests, and for the classes who couldn't afford this sort of thing, minstrels became popular everywhere in Europe by the 15th century. Most of the time, they incorporated singing with their stringed instrument playing, and you could hear them anywhere at any time, from weddings to public feast days to during theatrical performance. If you wanted to be really special, you could even hire one to personally serenade the object of your affections with a special song just for him or her. I guess you could say, at the end of the day, people in medieval European towns weren't all that different from people today. They just wanted to have fun when they had the chance. This has been Footnoting History. 
For further reading suggestions related to this week's podcast, including links to the rules of the medieval game Hazard, visit our website, footnotinghistory.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page and on Twitter at History Footnote. Join us next week when we'll be talking about the defenestrations of Prague. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!